Welcome to another inspiring message from Pastor John Cameron, lead pastor of Arise Church in New Zealand. We know this message will empower and inspire you. Why don't you turn in your Bibles with me today, no matter where you are, to the book of 1 Samuel and chapter 14. 1 Samuel and chapter 14. And we're going to be talking today around the theme of misbelief. Misbelief. This is our topic. Uh, I did part one last week, so if you're in Christchurch today or in Carpity, you've already had an advanced preview and, of course, everybody online. But we're going to be talking about part two of this, and I really believe that this message might just change a lot of lives today. So everybody get with me. We're going to have a great morning. Father, illuminate your word. Make it revelation in our hearts. Change us. Free us. Empower us. Make us more like your son, Jesus. We pray and everybody said, Amen. Amen. I didn't hear you, Whangarei. I think you can do a lot louder. Everybody said in Whangarei, Amen. It was excellent. <laughs> you got your own little fan club here, Whangarei. So that's awesome. All right, Dunedin. Looking forward to seeing you guys later on. Here we are. Verse one. One day, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come on. Let's go over to where the Philistines have their outpost. But Jonathan did not tell him, his father, what he was doing. Meanwhile, Saul and his 600 men were camped on the outskirts of Gibeah around the pomegranate tree at Migrant. Among Saul's men was Ahijah, the priest, who was wearing the ephod, the priestly vest. Verse 4. No one realized that Jonathan had left the Philistine camp. Sorry, the Israelite camp. To reach the Philistine outpost, Jonathan had to go down between the two rocky cliffs that were called Boses and Sheena. The cliff on the north was in front of Mishmash, and the one on the south was in front of Gibeah. Let's go across to the outpost of those pagans, Saul said to his armor bearer. Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Sorry, the lighting on the stage is a bit hard for me to read my Bible. I'm going to switch to my iPad. Uh, Let's go across to the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. Well, do what you think is best, the armor bearer replied. I am with you completely, whatever you decide. All right then, Jonathan told him, we will cross over and let them see us. If they say to us, stay where you are or we'll kill you, then we'll stop and we won't go up. But if they say, come on up and fight, then we'll just climb on up. That will be the Lord's sign. Talk about dodgy guidance, right? (laughs) That will be the Lord's sign that he will help us and defeat us. That's crazy. When the Philistines saw them coming, they shouted, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. Then the men from the outpost shouted to Jonathan, come on up here and we'll teach you a lesson. Listen, come on, climb up right behind me, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, for the Lord will help us defeat them. Okay. So they climbed up using both hands and feet, the Osh compliant, and the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed those who came behind them. They killed some 20 men in all, and their bodies were scattered over about half an acre. Suddenly, 
panic broke out in the Philistine camp, both in the camp and in the field, including even the outposts and the raiding parties. And just then an earthquake struck and everyone was terrified. Saul's outlooks in Geber of Benjamin saw a strange sight. The vast army of Philistines began to melt away in every direction. Call the roll and find out who's missing, Saul ordered. And when they checked, they discovered that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. Then Saul shouted to Ahijah, bring the ephod here. We need to have a prayer meeting. For at that time, Ahijah was wearing the ephod in front of the Israelites. But while Saul was talking to the priest, the confusion in the Philistine camp grew louder and louder. So Saul said to the priest, oh, look, never mind. Let's just get going. It's crazy, this passage. Then Saul and all his men rushed out to the battle and found the Philistines killing each other. There was terrible confusion everywhere. Even the Hebrews, who had previously gone over to the Philistine army, revolted and joined with Saul, Jonathan, and the rest of the Israelites. Likewise, the men of Israel who were hiding in the hill country of Ephraim joined the chase when they saw that the Philistines were running. Everybody wants to get in once the battle's already going well. Verse 24, now the men of Israel were pressed to exhaustion that day because Saul had placed them under an oath saying to them, let a curse fall on anyone who eats before evening before I have full revenge on my enemies. So no one ate anything all day, even though they had all found, all found honeycomb on the ground in the forest. They didn't dare touch the honey, liquid glucose, like having a gel if you're a cyclist, because all, they all feared the oath they had taken. But Jonathan had not heard his father's command, and he dipped the end of his stick into a piece of honeycomb and ate the honey. After he ate it, he felt refreshed. The lights came on again. But one of the men said to him, your father made the army take a strict oath that anyone who eats food today will be cursed. That's why everyone is weary and faint. My father has caused trouble, made trouble for us all. Jonathan exclaimed. A command like that only hurts us. See how refreshed I am now that I have eaten just this little bit of honey. Um, I will never forget dating the woman that I've been married to for 20 years in April of this year, of this, of this year my dear wife, Jillian. You got to understand that when I was a teenager growing up, I was not like, you know, popular. I wasn't very good at sport. I, I did pretty well academically, but that doesn't tend to make you many friends. I had white, pink, and fluoro pink skin. You know, I, I, I just never seemed to get my hairstyle right. I couldn't join like the, the guys who were dressing in the right clothing. And let's be honest, in 1986, that was nowhere near the same emphasis as it is for the teenage boy today. Uh, you know, and, and so when I'm like 20 something years old and this absolutely gorgeous blonde bombshell starts to give you those indicators and I need a lot of them to let me know that she's actually interested in me. You can imagine this was like the most amazing thing that has ever happened to me in my life. When I finally got to take her on a date, I couldn't believe it. When she said yes to be my girlfriend, it was like the whole world just got good. 
Our relationship started progressing. It got really serious. I was thinking to myself, I want to spend the rest of my life with this girl. And then the craziest thing started to happen. I started to think, man, what, what if God doesn't want me to marry this girl? I mean, she's got my heart, but what if God doesn't want me to go that direction? What if tomorrow I'm going to wake up and God's going to be saying to me, hey, John, you need to let this relationship go. What, what if God wants me to stay single? I mean, there's one verse to back that up in the Bible. But when you're desperately in love, that verse has like got a megaphone attached to it. What if, the, what if God wants me to stay single so that I can serve Him more purely throughout the rest of my life? I was totally freaking out. It was getting to the point where I really wanted to marry Jillian, but I'm also just living with this constant fear. It was messing with my prayer life. It was messing with my daily life. And, and, and I'm, I'm getting all confused. So finally I decided I got to go and talk to my pastor about this. So I went to see my pastor. I sat down and my question was vague. I was just saying to him, you know, you know pastor, I, I, I'm, I'm just wondering what you think of my relationship with Jillian. And, and he just says to me, he says, oh, well, I think she's a great girl. She's clearly on fire for God. Uh, you know, she's beautiful. And then he just looks me straight in the eye. And he'd been my personal mentor for the last four or five years. He looks me in the eye and he just says to me, John, whatever you do, don't pray about this relationship. Now, when you're out there, you're immediately, many people recoiling, going, you know, whoa, that's wonky advice. Why would you say not pray about it? But here is my pastor who knows me intimately, and he's saying, John, don't try and over-spiritualize whether God is going to be against you in this relationship that you're engaged in. She loves the Lord. He's saying that. He's interested in my development. You love the Lord. Two are better than one. He's saying, man, just don't make it about God and His will. Make it about you and whether you, if you want it, then God's okay with it. For me, it was like the most radical thought anybody had ever shared. I cannot tell you the freedom that came to my life to know that God just wanted me to make a decision about this. And if I'd make a decision, then He was cool with it. And the thought, the notion that God was around the corner waiting to just strike this relationship down, that I needed to be apprehensive, the fear I was experiencing, this turmoil internally, was symptomatic in my life of a misbelief. A misbelief. A wrong or false belief. The thing about a misbelief that makes it exactly identical to a, mis a true belief is that both misbeliefs and beliefs are things that you believe. The difference between the two is that one is a right thing and one is a wrong thing. I reckon for every single person hearing this talk today, no matter where you are in the world, every single one of us has got some right beliefs about God and some misbeliefs. Whenever those misbeliefs raise their ugly head right there in our lives, we're going to find a false sense of fear. We're going to find apprehension about maybe what we're going through or the days that are to come. We're going to find a source of doubt in our life. We're going to find a lack of forward movement and progression, a destruction of vision. And in our lives, God always comes to us to challenge our misbelief we got here in our passage of Scripture, Jonathan and Saul. 
a, a son and a father. And when we look at their lives, we see the evidence of one man who has a right belief and another who has a misbelief. The contrast between these two men could not be more different, yet they both worshipped at the same church. They both believed in the same God. They both read the same book of the law, or for us, putting in our context, they both read the same Bible. Yet look at Saul. we got Saul who is doing absolutely nothing. A, a big army is confronting Israel. A threat to the promise and the plan of God has raised its ugly head. And we've got Saul who is doing absolutely fat nada. He is paralyzed. And then in contrast to him, we've got Jonathan who just won't sit still even though all he's got is him and his armor bearer. He's just gonna go AWOL to put himself out there that maybe God could do something. We've got, we've got Saul who is full with fear. We've got Jonathan who's filled with great confidence in God. We've got Saul who's constantly worried that he isn't doing the right thing. And we've got Jonathan who's just willing to take a risk. We've got Saul, who is apprehensive, and we've got Jonathan, who is adventurous. We've got Saul, who is double-guessing his guidance. I mean, it is amazing. The, the Philistines are literally running away. He, he has received word. The Philistines are turning and running away. In the camps, they are killing each other. There is a great sense of confusion. Yet Saul is saying, bring the priest, let's have a prayer meeting because we better find out whether it's God's will for us to pursue these cats. I mean, it's just, it's obvious, you know what I'm saying? I mean, even as he attempts to have a prayer meeting, he cancels the prayer meeting and says, let's just get on with it. But in contrast to him, we've got Jonathan who's looking to find out the will of God by saying, hey, if they shout out and say, stay down there, then, oh, God doesn't want us to climb up. But if they say climb up, then we'll just climb up because God is with us. That is shonky guidance. Yet, my friends, it is an indicator just of the way that they see God. We've got Saul, who even though all his enemies are fleeing from him, is still saying, hey, everybody fast. Everybody fast because who knows what God really is thinking. Jonathan is just saying, man, that is absolutely stupid. We should just keep eating so that we can bring greater glory to God. And the way that both these men lived is indicative of their personal relationships with God, their beliefs and their misbeliefs. And friends, in our lives, every single one of us has right belief and misbelief, and what it's doing to us is determining the way that we live. Jonathan's like, let's just, let, let's just have a go. Saul is doubting even the obvious. Jonathan it's through revelation. He's living bold, unafraid. He's living confident. He's living big. And Saul, through religion, is living small and fearful and doubting. Yeah. And then, obviously, at the end of our reading is these amazing last two verses, 29 and 30, where Jonathan begins to speak about his father's misbelief. And he says, my father is making trouble for everybody. A command like that only hurts us. We're not going to get anywhere fasting today. That is not beneficial. That's not, the, that's not God's will in this moment. Man, it only hurts us. See how refreshed I am because I had a little bit of honey. If the men had been allowed to eat freely, then think about how many more people we would have killed today. 
He's saying, if we weren't so bound by our wrong thinking about God, we would move a lot faster. We would give God a lot more glory. We would not live lives that are fearful, holding back, that are in doubt of whether God is okay with us. We would just live a much better quality of life. And I want to put it to every single person here in this message today, no matter whether you are online in some nation of the world, in Whangarei, in Hamilton, in Carpety, Christchurch, or Dunedin, that every single one of us today can be tempted to be bound by misbelief. Misbelief first jumps into the Bible with Adam and Eve. I mean, you know, they were created by God, ruling and reigning over the world, and then sin enters. The Bible says they're so afraid that they hide in the bushes, you know, that they're filled with a sense of we are useless, we're nobody. God turns up and says, what's going on? And they said, well, we were afraid because we were naked, so we hid. And God just says, what? Hang on. Who told you that? Where did that misbelief jump into your way of thinking and seeing that you see yourself that way. That is not a right belief. It's a misbelief. And the symptoms of that misbelief are seen in the emotions of your life. We've got Adam who was hiding. We've got Saul who was hiding. If you're searching in your life, your heart today for a misbelief, then don't look at what you say because talk is cheap. The way we find our misbelief is to uh, look at our actions, our, our reactions, our responses in moments of push. That's where you begin to really get a clear view of the misbeliefs of every person. In fact, in our passage this morning, we have seven. Let me just throw them up real quick so we can move on to the new con content this morning. But in this passage, we see number one, a fear of judgment. He's fasting Saul because he's hoping that God will be pleased with him and that God is not going to judge him. Number two, apprehension of taking a God-honoring risk. He just won't do it. Cowardice of spirit, insecurity, inferiority, fruitlessness. Jesus highlighted in the parable of talents, and he said the reason why the guy with one talent did nothing with it was because he viewed God as a harsh man. And a misbelief about God robbed his life of fruit, robbed Saul's life of fruit, robs my life of fruitfulness and yours as well. Lack of conviction, double-mindedness. Whenever in our lives we find one or all of these seven things playing on our lives, we find right there a pretty great evidence that misbelief is working, it's destructive work in us. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know how many people hearing this today uh, had the privilege of being with us for the groundbreaking ceremony of the Arise Center. Grateful for, uh, you know, families from Hamilton coming down, you know. We had people flying in, you know, to be with us on the front row today from Papua New Guinea. You know, people were coming. It was an exciting moment. And all it was was a big patch of dirt with some lines marked out on the ground and a couple of us with spades turning a few little, you know, tufts of dirt. But it was exciting. And I will never forget walking around those little dazzle spray paint lines on the ground thinking this building is absolutely enormous. We can do anything with this building. We're going we're gonna to change the world from this building. 
Well, you know, this week I went back out to the site and we showed some photos today, but it's so exciting to see what's happening now with the Arise Center. But on Wednesday, I stepped onto the ground of the Arise Center inside what will be the foyer of the Arise Center. And as I looked and I saw concrete block work where pillars will be, this thought came into my head. And when I thought the thought, fear just gripped my heart. I thought, this foyer is too small. I was like, oh my gosh, it's too small. I I was was alone. I made sure I just walked away from the crowd. I went into the kids' spaces. These kids' spaces, so crucial for the usability of this building. I mean, you know, kids cramped up into a little tiny room equals just absolute chaos. I walked into the kids' room and I thought, this kids' room is too small. By now, I'm freaking out. I looked at the auditorium. And my heart's racing. There's a bulldozer. I'm parked in the middle of it. Yet still, I'm thinking, the auditorium is too small. It's been about 30 seconds of this. Too small, too small, too small. And then suddenly I realized that right where we are today in the Arise Uh, in a Wellington venue, we are in a building uh, that maybe today because of the rush packing is slightly smaller, but uh, uh, last week's auditorium and the week before that, the auditorium that we were in was only two meters wider, but it was three meters shallower than the Arise Center that we are building, meaning that it is in no way too small. It's a massive auditorium. And then I suddenly went, hang on a minute. If the auditorium look small, but I know it's not small, then I bet these kids' rooms are not too small. I bet the foyer's actually all right. It's just my mind using lines to play tricks on me. And I suddenly thought, isn't that exactly what our faith gets like? When you come to Christ, if you can keep your faith about a big expansive life, but the moment you start putting a whole lot of lines in the sand, making rules where God doesn't have rules, then suddenly who God is goes from really big to a little smaller. Instead of thinking we can do anything, starting with you're starting to doubt whether you can do anything at all. Does anyone know what I mean? And that's why in our lives we must challenge our misbeliefs. So how do we challenge our misbeliefs? That's our topic for today. How do we challenge our misbelief. The first way that we challenge the misbelief of our lives is through crisis. I know nobody's writing it down. In fact, a few people who were writing it down just suddenly looked up like they're doubting it. But yeah, the first way you deal with a misbelief is by going through a crisis. I've always believed that God can heal. My whole life, I believe that God can heal. Yet my misbelief was always that it's not a strength of my ministry, that it's not a gift that I uniquely possess, that there are other people who are good at that. They're really anointed and special, but I don't possess the gift of healing. Well, I can tell you that that misbelief got head-on confronted when my son Will was about three years old and he was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. Driving down the street in Melbourne, I discovered this through a phone call from my wife, Jillian. I asked the driver of the vehicle, do you know anything about this autoimmune disease with a long and complicated name? And he said to me, know about it. I had it and began to describe his journey and how he had to have like the the things on his leg like Forrest Gump to learn how to walk again and all of this. And my life was filled with just fear. I went back 
to the room where I was staying because I couldn't fly back to New Zealand. I was stuck until the next morning and I just prayed all night. And I started off praying for my son, believing God for a miracle for him. But when you have a misbelief, it's very hard to find a foundation of conviction. So about maybe, maybe 12.30, I began to get the Bible out, which is a good thing when you're praying, right? And I began to go through every scripture in the Bible that spit, spoke of healing. But I'm not praying it like it's a cutesy thing to know and as a preacher, you gotta be familiar with it. I was praying it because the most dearly loved people in my life were being threatened by illness and I needed healing. So I began to speak these scriptures out and speak these scriptures out. Well, I can just tell you that what had been shrouding me in fear just felt like it was just progressively rolling away until about three o'clock in the morning, I saw a picture of Will. He was a teenager. He was tall. He was popular. I could tell he was creative and I could tell that he was happy. And I texted my wife and I said, don't worry, Jillian, he's gonna be just fine. Well, by the time I got home, he'd been released from the hospital. Uh, A doctor told us that in all of his 37 years of medicine, it's the mildest case of the disease he's ever seen. But I want you to know how great is God that sometimes when your life looks like it is the worst is when He starts doing the most. Sometimes it takes a crisis for you and I to face up to something that we've actually tolerated for a long time. Can I give you the most scary challenge maybe any preacher's ever laid on you? Think about your life. Think about your life. Consider actions, reactions, and responses that have been maybe even patterns over the course of your life. Ask yourself, where do they not line up with the truth of God's Word? And then be willing to say it. I'm willing to say it. You're not a bad Christian, but just be willing to admit that we've got some misbelief that we need to confront. Because really what I'm saying with crisis is that you never change until you feel like you need to change. Unless anybody's uncomfortable, they're just gonna keep rocking on with the natural progress of life. But how about rather than waiting till we get to heaven to realize we live with a whole lot of stuff that kept us small, we voluntarily just jump up to the plate and say, I have some symptoms in my life of a life that is not in line with God's Word. I'm a controlling parent. I'm an angry, I use anger to manipulate people. Uh, you know, as, as a mom, maybe I'm fearful that if I go on a date with my kids, that my, my, parent, my husband, sorry, that I'm neglecting my child. Maybe I'm, I'm afraid to really abandon my life and worship because I don't know what God's gonna do if I give my life fully to Him. Find that moment, find that point where there's a misbelief and let's decide that we're gonna deal with it. Because here's the thing, and it's gonna come up on your screen today, is that you form belief intentionally, but you form misbelief passively. Unless there is in our lives a conscious decision to decide what we believe, to form what we believe, then the truth is, friends, and I know everybody out there knows this, right? You just end up living with misbelief. It is a fight to find belief. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against strongholds, arguments, pretensions, and thoughts that exalt themselves against what? The 
knowledge, the correct belief about God. Starts with a crisis. The next way that you and I can deal with misbelief is through truth. Truth. Truth is obviously the greatest antidote to a misbelief because it is true belief, right? So if you and I want our lives to find the truth of God, to live our lives in line with truth, then we better start focusing on the truth. Give truth our life, our attention. Immerse yourself in truth. How many people out there would say that in your life you've achieved results beyond maybe that of your family background or even of your wider family, but you just found Jesus started to meditate on His Word and a misbelief changed to a belief and you broke free where others couldn't. Anybody out there? Come on. Yeah, come on. Why don't we give God some proper praise and look like we really believe that in Him is truth. And if you know the truth, the truth will set you, set you free. Immerse yourself in truth. I've been a student of this book for my entire adult life, and I couldn't tell you how many times something I've thought about God, about life in connection with God, just got radically challenged because I gave this truth some of my attention. I mean, I have a chair every morning. That's where I go. I go to my chair. I sit in the chair. I grab this book, and I make, up, make sure it's early before the kids get up. If you're a night person, night. If you're a busy person, shift worker, find a spot. But make this book the daily focus of your life. I decided that in preparation for today, I would read my annotations, my little handwritings in my current Bible because I wear them out and get a new one. I would read back and find how many misbeliefs in the last week God's dealt with in my life. Two. Two times this week, I read a verse and I realized, not big things, not big things. One was about the way we select leaders for our church. The other, I can't remember because it's not in my notes, but both times in the last week, God's used His Word to show me that there's been some way I've been thinking, living, acting, reacting, and responding that doesn't line up with a true belief about who He is. The third way is encounter. Man, it start, your crisis is gonna bring about a change from misbelief to belief. Meditating on truth is absolutely, absolutely gonna hear us in the right direction. And so does encounter. Encounter is what I use to describe when you come face to face with a discovery of God that you didn't know until it happens. That's like Gideon, who is in a wine press, a little scaredy pants, Yet when God turns up in his life, God looks at him and says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. We think God's lying. No, Gideon has been living with a misbelief and coming face to face with God, Gideon began to realize it's a symptom always. He was fearful. He was doing nothing. He's burying his head in the sand. He was unable to deal with conflict. I mean, these are themes. And God said to him, stop allowing your misbelief to rule your life. Flip over a page in the Bible and we've got Gideon with 300 warriors confronting the army of Midian and winning a great victory for his nation. I'm here to tell you, you're only ever one discovery of God away from a radically different life. Come on, if you believe there's more to discover about God today, then no matter where you are, 
Why don't you give that God some praise? Come on. Amen. We're learning all the time. Moses thought he was a stutterer and God said, you're my mouthpiece. Elijah said, I'm the only one left. And God said to him, what are you doing here? I've hidden 300 warriors, 300 other prophets. You're not the only one. Now, Peter thought because he'd failed God, he'd never be an apostle. And Jesus turned up and said, do you love me? Yeah, well, then don't let your failure rule your life. I'm more interested in your future than I am in your failure. It's time to get going. And wherever we find misbelief, we need to be searching, searching for God. Joshua thought he was all alone and that God had forgotten about him until a man with a drawn sword appeared in front of him. There's always something more to learn about our God. Five weeks ago, I was standing in one of our worship services and we, I think it was five, we introduced a service that we've sung, a song that we've sung already today. Natalie was leading, the band were up there and the song uh, says in the chorus, I think it's the chorus or the bridge, forget about it. It says, if this life I live holds nothing but the cross where Jesus took my shame, then with arms stripped wide and my head held high, my every breath will sing again. Oh, what grace I found in you, my Jesus, that my soul should entertain your greatness. If this life holds nothing but my Jesus, then I will praise you. And tears came down my face and I just realized that in my life, in that moment, I just got a slight piece of distraction going on, a slight misbelief that this life is about achievement or accolade, or progress. When it's not, it's just about Him. It was an encounter. The whisper happens all the time. I always just say, and I, I always will reiterate this, I think as long as I'm the pastor of this church, but it breaks my heart whenever I turn around in a worship service and I see people. Because you know there's a moment of encounter always just looking for you looking for me if we would open our hearts to him turn this turn this into this into this into this become a seeker of God because encounter is one of the principal ways God needs to be searched for he looks for people who will actively look for him. And the final one, I'm, I'm going to bring this to a close, is that we've got to, we've got to, in our lives, firstly, allow us to have a crisis. We've got to search for truth. Thirdly, we have to deal with the big people who search for encounter. And fourthly, we have to change our confession. If we want misbelief to change, in our lives, then we have to take what we say and make it line up with what we believe. In Jeremiah chapter one, the Bible says that God comes to Jeremiah and says, I'm anointed you the prophet of the nations. And in verse six of, of Jeremiah one, the Bible recounts Jeremiah looking at God, who I think knows better what we should do with our lives than we do. And he says, How, I'm only a child. I'm only a child. I can't even speak. And God said to Jeremiah, do not say, I am only a child. I am only. 
Do not say, I am only. He's saying, Jeremiah, if you want to live my will for you, you have to change what you're confessing about who you are. Let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich. Come on. We need to change the what we are saying from our mouths. We need to fill our heart and our mouth with the Word of the Lord. I'm not weak, I am strong. I'm not poor, I am destined to be prosperous. I am not sick, I am well. I am not cursed, I am blessed. I'm not the tail, I'm the head. I'm not defeated, I'm more than a conqueror because of Him who loved me. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I am convinced that height, depth, principality, power, nothing in all of creation can ever separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Come on, if you believe that Jesus is victorious, then no matter where you are, I want you to stand to your feet and give our God one great shout of praise this morning. Thanks for listening to this message from Pastor John Cameron. If you would like to find out more about Arise Church, check out arisechurch.com or find us on YouTube.